According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs this morning, Proverbs chapter 13. We uh, began the chapter last week, and I want to get our second shot at it here this morning. Proverbs chapter 13. A wise son, a father's discipline. And this is the opening phrase here from verse 1, just four words, a wise son, father's discipline, and uh, they go together. Without the one, you don't get the other, and that's, uh, that's the truth. We need uh, a father's discipline in order to instill that wisdom into the next generation. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. This is a very important time. It gives us the 1 John 1, 9 opportunities. If we happen to be out of fellowship, we can confess our sins and be in fellowship and, uh, and even if we're not out of fellowship, take advantage of this time. Quiet your heart and, and humble yourself for the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank You for this morning and the truth of Your Word, the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness day after day and moment after moment. Father, uh, you are the faithful one. We rejoice in that. And Father, your faithfulness will be displayed once again as we study to show ourselves approved. That You will open the eyes of our understanding. You will lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You will teach us what we need to learn. And uh, Father, for that we thank you. So we're ready to feed and we uh, thank you for your grace provision. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs 13. We have a beginning here that echoes uh, chapter 10. The beginning of chapter 13 echoes the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, Both chapters begin with a wise son. And you can kind of see that if you peek back at chapter 10 and verse 1, where it says the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And uh, there's other reasons as well by which we take chapters 10, 11, and 12 and we kind of put them together as a unit. We believe when these chapters were put in this order, when they were placed in the canon of Scripture in this way, that chapters 10, 11, and 12 were designed as a unit to be included in the, on that basis. Likewise, chapter 13 is a unit. That chapter 13 originally stood on its own in its own composition and then was placed in the canon of Scripture at this point uh, following chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so we accept it as, uh, as a unit. Um, both chapters demonstrate the personal and public wisdom is the legacy of parental wisdom instilled from childhood. And of course, we've been teaching chapters 1 through 9 is the parental wisdom portion of the book, that those are the chapters where a father and a mother are pleading with their son, uh, pleading in the second person, uh, addressing the person uh, face-to-face, saying, my son, listen to me, listen to your mother. Whereas in chapters 10 through 24, we have the, the personal and public wisdom section of the book. And uh, these same appeals are restated, but they're restated in the third person. So it's a wise son does this, a foolish son does that, uh, written in the third person, not in the uh, first person or second person appeals that we have in in uh, the first nine chapters. <coughs> we also have a bracket within the chapter. Verses 1 and 2 is bracketed by verses 24 and 25. 
and we can see that. Uh, let's see, I read verse 1 already this morning. Let's look at 1 and 2 and then 24 and 25. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. So that's what opens the chapter in those two verses. And then when we glance down to the end in verses 24 and 25, we have, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. And so those same themes of parental discipline and the, the, the discipline of a father that produces the wisdom in a child and then the appetite, these, these concepts from verses 1 and 2 come back again in verses 24 and 25. And so they form a bracket, they form a, uh, an opening and a closing, if you will, of a unit that, uh, that we have as we, what we call today Proverbs chapter 13. This chapter demonstrates that well-adjusted adults are the product of loving discipline. And that's the benefit, that's the outcome. When you train up a child in the way he shall go, there are lifelong effects that come from that. Another noteworthy feature in this chapter is that there is no direct reference to God. And I shared that with you last week, and I didn't believe it at first, and some of you didn't believe it either. But when you read through all these verses, you don't find God anywhere. You don't find a direct reference to God or the Lord. So there's no reference to Elohim or to Yahweh, any reference to God directly in any of these verses. And what we have, there will be you know, secondary understandings, there'll be implications clearly. If you're talking about righteousness, well, whose righteousness is that? Or if you're talking about um, uh, the wicked or other things, clearly that, that demands that we have a, a, an understanding of God and who He is and what His standards are. But there are, there's no direct reference to God anywhere in this chapter, and that's, that's kind of an interesting feature as well. All right, so we uh, started last week with point two then. <coughs> Actually, we got through two and three last week, didn't we? So we can uh, just quickly touch on this and then gain new ground. The, uh, the poetry is just brief. The po- very common in Hebrew poetry. Uh, it takes many more words in English to bring it across, but it's only four words. It's, it's bain, chacham, musar, av. Four words. You have son, wise, uh, discipline, father. Okay? And those are the words that you have. Ben is son, chacham is, is wise. Uh, it's the adjective from chachma, wisdom. You have musar, which is our loving discipline. This is the, 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 the nurture and admonition of the Lord right here. In the New Testament, it would be called paideia. And that includes this loving discipline instruction. The musar of the av, and av is, is father. No verb in the text, so a verb is either supplied from the second half of the verse, or the ellipsis is left to stand as it is. And I think that's the better way to do it. I, I, I prefer to leave it untranslated. Don't put a verb in there and just understand an is. We have an implied is that belongs there. And so um, we can do that. Now, I realize it's common when you look at the second half of the verse, a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. There is a verb there. The verb is does not listen. And, and so we can, we can take it and we can inject it back into the first half of the verse. And that's fairly common in Hebrew poetry to take one, one part and inject it in the other part. And so it's not wrong, I don't think, as we bring it into English to say, you know, if a scoffer does not listen to rebuke, well, a wise son does. A wise son does listen or a wise son accepts. 
his father's discipline. But, but those, are, those are helping words. And if you have it in your Bible, uh, probably it's in italics where it says accepts his. Those are in italics because they're not in the Hebrew text. They're supplied. The translators are putting that in there to help to uh, better convey the thought. But if we don't put those helping verbs in there, what are we left with? If, if, if all we're left with is wise son, father's discipline, then we can leave it stand like that as an ellipsis. We can leave it stand like that and have the idea of an is, uh, a state of being verb. Put an is in there. A wise son is a father's discipline. And, and that makes sense. That, that conveys a rational thought that does communicate truth from other concepts of Scripture. A wise son is a father's discipline. And I kind of like that. I, that. To me, that, that, uh, that does resonate in, uh, in a lot of ways. <coughs> All right. In any event, the parental appeal was made at great length in chapter 4, and we looked at that last week. I won't go back to it again this morning. But throughout chapter 4, it's that parental appeal. Listen to wisdom. Listen to what your father's telling you. Listen to what your mother's telling you. It's coming from the Word of God. Let it transform your life. And it's going to be recapped repeatedly in subsequent chapters, such as chapter 10, chapter 13, we've already seen. It's going to come back again in chapter 15 and in chapter 29, again and again and again. This is what a wise son does. This is and uh, bringing pleasure, bringing joy to the parents. And uh, conversely, the fool is, uh, is a source of grief. Proverbs 15, 20. <coughs> A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Chapter 29 and verse 3. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. And so, you know, in these chapters, again, we're dealing with personal and public wisdom. It's, it's laid out there for application. It is what it is. And if it's making the father glad, if it's making the mother uh, not glad, if it's having these effects, in these chapters, it does not declare that there's anything the father's supposed to do about it or there's anything the mother's supposed to do about it. It is what it is. Because in that generation, as they've gone on, they are now standing before the Lord. And that's, uh, that's the aspect of it. So we learn as parents, and I'm getting there, all right, Sharon and I are half empty nesters. That means that we've had four children and two have departed and two are still living with us. Um, but with adult children, you learn that uh, you, you don't spank them anymore. <laughs> you know, you, you, sometimes you want to, but uh, you just don't, you know. And, and then uh, the boys get bigger than you anyway, and then, then it's kind of scary. You can't spank them, um, but you can pray for them, and that's the key. And so, because they stand in their generation, and they, they stand before the Lord, and wisdom will make them stand. That's the blessing of it. And we, uh, we appreciate that very much. All right. We move on, and we talk about the scoffer then. In the second part of this verse, the scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Remember, we've studied the scoffer before from chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 9. We've seen the scoffer repeatedly. The scoffer is not only a fool, he's a defiant fool. He will not listen to either an earthly father or clearly to God the Father. He's a defiant fool. He will not listen. The reason why is because he knows better. The reason why is because he knows it all anyway. You know, how do you teach a know-it-all? They know more than you. 
And uh, why would they listen to God? That's just foolishness. Why would he listen to the Word of God or the Bible? And so the scoffer is this defiant fool who will not listen. And uh, this is the, uh, the aspect of it. We saw it in chapter 1 and verse 22, chapter 3 and verse 34. In fact, it's to the point where you realize if this is what you're dealing with, then you're probably better off not even correcting him because he's just going to hate you for it. He's just going to turn and tear you up. And I think that uh, you, you want to have that kind of wisdom as well in Proverbs 9. When do you wash your hands? When do you wipe the dust off your feet? When do you, uh, when do you not cast your pearls before a swine? See, Jesus taught the same principle. You don't cast what's holy to the dogs. They will turn and, and, and tear you up. Or the, the swine, they will trample you. And so in uh, Proverbs 9, it says in verse 7, um, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And so, you know, we have to apply wisdom in in the circumstance and ask, well, which is it? (laughs) Okay, Do I reprove him or not? Do I stay silent? Is, Is there a time to speak and a time to stay silent? Yes. And this is one of those times. And the real wisdom is figuring out, well, okay, which one of those times is this then in, uh, in this application? Uh, ten times totally from Proverbs 10 to 24, we're going to have the scoffer who's going to make his reappearance again and again and again and again. And it's, it's curious. Um, I think my daughter's learning this in her adult capacity now in, uh, in the workplace and out there in public. And she's meeting all kinds of people that weren't raised the way she was raised. And she's finding a whole lot of people that are just utterly dismissive of truth, utterly dismissive of the Word of God. And it's, it's, it's curious to me listening to her describe these things. And uh, well, there it is. Uh, the Old Testament is full of these illustrations, and this is where we ran out of time. We spent quite a bit of our time looking at Esau. Esau despised his birthright. Esau felt that the birthright and the blessing, although he hated his brother for stealing him, I think that's more selfishness than anything, carnal selfishness, even though he, he despised him. He felt that they were worthless. He felt that that whole covenant promise from Yahweh was a waste of time. and uh, And then later... He, he was happy to not even care anymore. When he finally does get reconciled with Jacob and Jacob has given him all these gifts, he says, I don't need any of that. I've made my own treasure. I've made my own wealth. And so when you read kind of the end of that story in Genesis 33, uh, Jacob is trying to, to, to buy you know, acceptance or love or, or at least you know, not murder, <laughs> trying to buy acceptance from his brother. And his brother says, I don't need your money. I've made my own wealth. I have my own. I have an abundance. And he just doesn't care. Um, Hebrews is the divine commentary on this, so we can turn to this, Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, <clears throat> in case you think perhaps um, I have the wrong uh, interpretation or maybe I, I'm, I'm too harsh on, on Esau, uh, we'll take the, the Bible's commentary on Esau, which is uh, found in Hebrews 12, and uh, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring this to give us the commentary on Esau. <coughs> And I know the screen says 16 and 17. I'm going to back up to verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And that's a warning to every believer. It's a warning to me, to you, to every believer in the church age. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. 
And you've got to stop it at the root. If you don't stop it at the root, then it will spring up. That's what it does. And, and you've got to root it out. Bitterness will be terrible. Years later, you find that you've been eaten up by bitterness this whole time. And uh, what a waste. And it goes on, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. And that's our, this is our warning now. Esau is the example. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So selling the birthright, was that immoral or was that godless? <laughs> okay, But that's what he was. He was an immoral, godless person. And so he had no frame of reference for the birthright. He had no appreciation for the birthright. He was a scoffer, a defiant fool that had no appreciation for the God of the universe and what God had promised. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was uh, rejected. So he, in, in, in the first chapter, he sells the birthright for a pottage of stew, but then the second chapter, he wants the blessing, but Jacob stole it. Jacob went in in disguise, and Isaac was blind and didn't know. And uh, he desired to inherit the blessing. Now, what was, what was at work there? What kind of selfishness was at work there? He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And let me tell you, I could stop right now and spend the rest of this morning preaching this verse. <laughs> because how many people have you encountered that are substituting emotionalism for the reality of, of what repentance truly is? Responding to the Word of God and the change of thinking that happens by someone humble under the teaching of the Word of God. So he, does not, he, does not, he finds no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And uh, this is what we're warned against. And this is, what, this is what happens when we uh, confuse issues, when we think that emotionalism has value or that the sincerity of our desire counts for something. Uh, we, can be, we can be sincere as the day is long, but we can be sincerely wrong. We want to be sincerely true as we are obedient to what God has revealed in, uh, in the Scriptures. So to me, that's, uh, that's a great example. I, I, I will always think of Esau when I think of this example with that root of bitterness and the, the false repentance, the, the regrets. And, and we've got to be on guard against this. If we're, if we're uh, we were talking just now about, about a person and we're praying for him to get saved, been praying for him for a long, long time to get saved, and, and so we get a little bit encouraged when we find out, hey, he's been thinking about it, great! But let's Again, be cautious, you know, why have you been thinking about it? And do you have, is there some bitterness? Are there some regrets? Are there some things? Let's make sure it's, it's, it's real. This is what the gospel is about. The reality of uh, what God has promised. The other illustration maybe is not as well known. David's older brothers in 1 Samuel 17. And Eliab is kind of the spokesman, I think, maybe for all of them. Um, but uh, when we look at 1 Samuel 17... He uses a, just a scornful expression. You talk about a defiant fool. And um, <clears throat> this is the chapter where David kills Goliath. And, the, and the, the lead up to this, the background for this with King Saul and the armies and then the defiance of the Philistines and the challenges going forth and everything that was taking place prior to David even knowing about it, prior to him coming and, and being a part of the story or, or entering into the, into the situation is uh, is interesting. So um, as we're introduced to this, the, the real scorn comes in verse 28, but the, the, um, the background for this, <coughs> um, 
David is, is, is the youngest, and he's at home. He's still uh, uh, serving his father, serving the sheep. Uh, we see that in verse 12. David was the son of uh, the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And so this kind of just sets the, the stage for the, the story and what, what follows here in this. But um, remember, Ephrathah was too small to be counted among the clans. Ephrathah was, uh, was you know, a part of the tribe of Judah, but it was really insignificant. It was not large enough to be counted as a clan even when you break down your tribe into clans and into families and into houses. So the house of Jesse, what's that? You know, and yes, it's the leading house of the clan of Ephrathah, but it's too small to even be counted among the clans. Nevertheless, he is the Ephrathite. He is the clan chieftain of, uh, of this group. But the older sons of Jesse, do they, do they esteem that? Do they value that? Does that mean anything to them? Or they're all off serving Saul? Okay, that's what we see here. Uh, the name of his first three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the second to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. So this is the, the circumstance here. So Jesse says to David in verse 17, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of your brothers, and bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and uh, look to the well-being of your brothers. And these terms, by the way, we were studying for other reasons, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the commanders of fifties. These are some of the things we look at when we deal with um, numbers in, in the Old Testament and population estimates and so forth. So look into the well-being of your brothers and bring back news of them. Bring back news of them. So this is what David does. He goes and he uh, delivers all the supplies. He learns about Goliath and this challenge, this taunting that's been going forth. And, and he's kind of surprised even that no one's done anything about it yet. <laughs> you know? You're like, are you kidding me? You know, what's the reward? And he's, he's defying the, uh, the armies of Israel. So uh, in verse 26... Um, and, and there's a great prize that's being uh, offered here. We read about that in verse 25. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. It will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free in Israel. But you talk about a promotion. Look at that. You can go from being a nobody to being somebody. You're connected. Okay, you're the king's son-in-law. Your, your, your house is now married to the royal house. I mean, that's connections right there. There's going to be profit for years. Not only that, but your household, your father's house will be free in Israel, exempt from all taxation. Wouldn't that be a thrill? Every April 15th, you just send your tax form in and say, no thanks, not participating this year, and I'm free. Okay, can you imagine? All right, well, I can daydream. But... um and so David can't believe it. And so he's saying, say that again? What's going to be done for the man? And notice, who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. See, David's priority is spiritual. Israel is being reproached. 
the people of God are being mocked. There's a, there's a scoffer that's mocking the, the Lord God of Israel, and David can't believe they're standing for it. They're letting it happen. Who is this, who, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And, and I estimate he's probably 10 years old. That's, that's my guess. He's a 10-year-old, he's a 12-year-old, he's, he's, he's a youth, okay, at whatever age. And um, it, it's just, it's beyond him, see. Now the key, I think in verse 28, it jumps out at me. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. You know, and then it, it's curious to me, was he not paying attention? Was, it, was Eliab... Did he even care that, that David had arrived with the cheese and the supplies and the bread and the loaves? And it's like he totally ignored the little runt, okay? And I get that. I'm an older brother. I've got a little runt. But, you know, you, you just, um, <laughs> not until he embarrassed him, not until he got up in front of everybody and started talking, like, oh my goodness, what's he saying now, okay? And there's my, my goofy little brother and all of his God talk. All of that religious stuff about, you know, the uncircumcised Philistine and the armies of the living God, and oh, there he goes again. There's my little brother and all that, all that religious talk, and it's embarrassing. And so uh, he, he, when he heard David speaking to the men, Eliab's anger burned against David, and said, "What are you doing here? Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness?" That pathetic little flock, that stupid little village of Bethlehem, that idiot, you know, father of ours who thinks he's somebody because he's the Ephrathite, you know. Do you see the, the ugliness of this whole expression? Can you read? Can you hear the... And I know we don't have tone of voice on, on paper, but, but there it is. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence. And this is somebody else, when you're dealing with a know-it-all, when you're dealing with a defiant fool, like a scoffer, they will usually project their own carnality on everybody else. Okay? They think you're lying because they're basically a liar and they're full of lies. They think you're defiant because they're defiant. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You have come down in order to see the battle. You're just here for the thrill of the battle. You're just here for the... well. I think he's kind of testifying to why he's here and what you know what 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 what's motivating his desire to see this and be a part of this and to see history made and and whatever else. Anyway, well back to that original question, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You want to talk about a scoffer, somebody that utterly disdains the house of Jesse, utterly disdains the 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 clan of Ephrathah. And yet, what do we know? We know that the clan of Ephrathah produces the Messiah. It's, it's you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth one whose coming was from long ago. And we have the promise of the, the, the virgin birth of our Savior and so much. And it comes here. It comes here. And I love this. I love how God uses the things we wouldn't expect and uh, chooses the, the, the weak to shame the strong and the little to shame the big. And He chooses the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are. It's a beautiful principle that we have here. So this is the, uh, this is the illustration here. All right. 
Back to uh, Proverbs 13 then. <clears throat> a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And we've had lots on scoffer, don't need to do much more with that. And then verses 2, 3, and 4 now. We get kind of a, an expansion here. And this forms a unit also. I think the poetry of these verses is interesting. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life, but the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. All right, now these... These three verses are connected, and the language connects them. And we've got mouth, mouth, lips, uh, soul, soul, soul. We've got uh, these expressions here. It's a catchword structure to the poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't often rhyme. Uh, we're used to poetry that rhymes, right? Roses are red, violets are blue. Whatever I say next has to rhyme with blue, right? Because that's that's how we do that's how we do our rhyming poetry. But um, <coughs> in Hebrew. A lot of times it's conceptual, a lot of times it's, it's parallelism or it's contrast, and sometimes it's catchwords that are used again and again and again, or they're used again and again and then they're changed. So you might have mouth, mouth, lips, but it's still the catchword that's there. And then you might have uh, soul, 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 which you have three times here, although the first one is, is a little harder to spot. Um, and this is what we're dealing with. So point four, if you want to put this in your notes, mouth and soul, mouth and lips, soul and soul. That's the parallelism of of verse two, verse three, and verse four. Mouth and soul, mouth and lips, soul and soul. Although even the middle verse that has mouth and lips also has a soul word because it has um, life in uh, verse three. That's nephesh, that's soul right there. The one who guards his mouth preserves his soul, his nephesh. Anyway, we've got a catchword structure to the poetic passage in verses 2 through 4. And I love this. This is the way that words bear fruit. This is the way that, that we bless one another, we bless our children. Because from the fruit of a man's mouth, what's the fruit of a man's mouth? I think it's the wise son that's living his life now in response to the father's discipline that we have here the expansion of uh, of verse 1 that's being reflected in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good. That is, the father is delighting now in the fruit that that, uh, his son is responding to wisdom. His son is living a life that's glorifying to Jesus Christ. I have no greater joy than this than to see my children walking in the truth. And uh, we see that there. The uh, <coughs> a couple of things are happening here, and, they, and it goes back and forth. And, and for us, maybe it's awkward um, because uh, there, there's the fruit, there's the uh, rebuke, there's what's going out, and there's what's coming in, and it kind of seems to be saying two things at once, and it is. And, and if we don't don't struggle with that, we can embrace it and think, hey, this is kind of fun. So um, let's, let's look at both sides of this. As an instrument for speaking, the mouth is a portal for edification, right? Or not. <laughs> we can also tear down one another with our words too. We, we want to be on guard against that. But as an instrument for speaking, 
The mouth is a portal for edification. And this is where it's the fruit of a man's mouth. Something has gone forth from your mouth and it's done good things. It has borne fruit. It has edified. And that's a good thing. And so uh, we have it uh, expressed here. Sometimes though, what comes from the mouth is something dangerous. Sometimes it's something ugly. And um, as we see, the desire of the treacherous is violence. What's coming out of that mouth? What's the destruction that happens there? How much damage can you do with hurtful words that are still causing pain 20 years later? That's why it's important to watch what you say. The one who guards his mouth preserves life. But the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. If you don't know when to shut up, you can cause more damage. So shut up now, (laughs) right? And we've had this before. There was a passage in chapter 10 that addressed this, a passage in chapter 11 that addressed this as well, that uh, sometimes the wisest thing you can do is just shut up. (laughs) Don't say anything, okay? Because in an abundance of words comes, um, comes the fall. Or comes, I guess, uh, transgression was the, through an abundance of words comes transgression. Transgression is unavoidable. But then, not only do do things come out of the mouth, things go into the mouth as well. You have a craving, you have an appetite. So the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat or is satisfied. We've got some fun studies on fat and satisfaction coming up, not only in Proverbs, but in uh, Hebrews. We've got some, uh, some concepts in Hebrews as well. That speaks of uh, fat satisfaction. So, um, so I'm going to give you. We're not ready for it yet, but um, we're going to give you under B. The mouth is either used for speaking or it's used for eating. And you've got an instrument for speaking. You've got an instrument for eating. And and uh, both whether something's coming out of your mouth or whether something's going in your mouth, we want to be adjusted to the word of God. Otherwise, um, great damage can be done. All right, but we're not ready for that yet. We're still using the mouth for speaking. As an instrument for speaking, the mouth is a portal for edification or not. And uh, I think we're familiar, Ephesians 4.29, James 3, verses 2 through 12. We ought to be familiar. We've, We've had teaching on this before. But think about the blessing we have. What can we produce with our words? Think about the the joy that it is to be in the image of God and to have the capacity for communication. Ephesians 4.29, church age application. <coughs> and we talk about the, uh, the edification, <coughs> the capacity for, it, it's, it's even, um, it's creative in a way that our creator has designed us in our human creativity, in the things that we say, in in. Um, songs that we sing, in words that we compose. And, uh, and, and so when, uh, when you are coming alongside for encouragement, what do you say? How do you say the right thing at the right time? How do you not say the wrong thing at the wrong time? Okay, And, and it can't be human, let me tell you, because humanity is going to get it wrong every time. <laughs> My humanity especially. I'm constantly foot and mouth, both feet, um, you know, and sometimes you replay a conversation afterwards and you're driving home and you think, oh, I should have said that. Oh, why didn't I say that? Okay, because I didn't think about it at the time. Well, the key is, clearly, 
as an instrument of God the Holy Spirit, as, as, as a conduit through whom God is working. God is at work in you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. That if you are willing to be His messenger, willing to be His communicator, let the Spirit speak through you. And then relax about it. Relax about it, okay? Because your heart was where it needed to be. You were serving the Lord. You, there was a verse that came to your mind and you shared it, okay? Later on you thought, oh man, I used the wrong verse. No, you used the right verse. You used the verse that the Holy Spirit gave you, okay? We want to be clear on that as well. <coughs> First man I ever led to the Lord. I was 15 years old. We're in, a, we're in a tent on a Boy Scout camp out. And I gave him the gospel, but I quoted the wrong verse. I, I cited one, but I gave the wrong address is what I did, right? Maybe I don't even remember now what it went. Romans 3.23, but I said Romans 6.23 or whatever. It was something like that. And then I remember weeping. I remember just laying there in the dark. It's two in the morning. It's dark. And I'm thinking, man, I blew it, right? That was crummy. I'm the worst Christian in the history of Christianity. You know, my, my, my buddy's going to die and go to hell and it's all my fault. I, I remember thinking that what kind of a loser Christian can't give the gospel any better than that? You know, and, and just the, the whole time just totally killing myself with guilt and everything. And, and my friend said to me, he said, thank you. He said, that made more sense than anything I've ever heard before in my life. And, and right there at 15 I learned a lesson. I, thought, I learned, wow, wait a minute. <laughs> How does that work? How can you be so totally confusing and then how can the Holy Spirit just take that and, and serve in, in a capacity like that? So that's, I think that's the key. We want to we do that. So Ephesians 4 speaks to this and uh, speaks about what we're doing in fellowship, what we're doing walking in the light. This is part of our new walk in light uh, as believers that um, we have a former manner of life and we lay that all aside. We have a new manner of life. We're putting on the new self. It's what it means to be growing in the Word of God. So verse 22 says, um, it's part of learning Christ. Verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. Indeed, you have heard Him and been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. So once you receive Christ, you've got to start learning Christ, being renewed in, in, uh, in the Word of God. Verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now all of those are commands, all of those are expectations, and it requires us, you and I, have to obey those commands. Okay? And what happens when we don't? Do you know any brothers and sisters that aren't growing in the Word of God? You know any brothers and sisters that aren't putting on the new flesh that are, or the new man? In fact, they're pretty happy to live in carnality and they're living in the old flesh. Okay? And they, they don't lose their salvation, right? They're still saved. They're going to go to heaven when they die. But uh, man, what a bonfire is waiting them at the judgment seat of Christ when they watch all that wood hand stubble go up because they never lived out this passage. And so it says, uh, in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. We should truth one another. Okay, I think of truth as a verb. We should truth one another. We should speak truth one to another. We are members one of another. Be angry, do not sin. 
Uh, do not give the devil an opportunity. Stop stealing. Work with your own hands. Share. Have an abundance to share with one who has need. But most of all, okay, and, and so we, we all may have a scale there where we're working with our own labor, where, where we have an abundance, we have something to share, but some have more and some have less, and we understand that. And sometimes we're sharing with others and sometimes we're being shared with, but something we all have is our words. If you're the richest guy in the church or the poorest guy in the church, we've got our words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And the blessings we have to communicate, the blessings we have to share the Word of God, to offer a word of encouragement, to just remind one another of, hey, this is the day the Lord has made. Hey, God is faithful. Hey, listen to what I learned today. Or just sharing any kind of an excitement and uh, edifying one another with the truth. That's what we're called to do. That it will give grace to those who hear. And uh, I don't know, I just love it. I love the way that we get to be creative in these things. And, and, and sometimes, you know, you're, you don't know what you're saying. You go to it, you go into a hospital room and you just pray and say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to say. I have no, in myself, I have no encouragement. This is, this is not a good place to be. But uh, Scripture, that works. <laughs> let's open a Bible, let's find a psalm. Let's uh, remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. And there you have it. All right, James uh, 3 shows us the uh, dangers as well as the blessings. <coughs> shows us how it's the same mouth that blesses and curses. It's the same tongue. It's the same capacity that we have. A, a tremendous edification capacity and a tremendous destruction capacity. And it's got to be controlled. Think how powerful it is. And so um, that's why I let not many of you become teachers, knowing as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. You know, the believer that's got a, a maturity that knows how to close his mouth at the right time that's a believer that's learned the lessons probably the hard way, but he's, he's learned the lessons and he's grown and we can be thankful for that. We put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us and we direct their entire body as well. You know, Think how small that bit is and think how big that horse is. Okay, And that's the key. Look at the ships. They're so great and are driven by strong winds. They're still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue. It's a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. You know how much trouble your words get you into. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire. We saw that on, in Hebrews, right? The angels are winds and ministers are fires. And think about how useful wind and fire can be when they're harnessed, when they're channeled, when they're controlled. And think about how destructive wind and fire both are when they're out of control and they're not channeled or harnessed appropriately. And so, it's the, but it's the same. Uh, it's the same tongue. It's the same mouth. Um, you know, it says uh, verse seven: Every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. You ever think about that? But no one can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Yeah, apart from the grace of God, how do you tame the tongue? Yeah. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. The same mouth. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. So uh, what does this tell us? How, how desperately do we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? How desperately do we need to be shaped by His thinking? So as an instrument for speaking, the mouth is a portal for edification or not. And I think that uh, when you talk about the fruit of a man's mouth, that's not only immediately, but that's down the road. That might be years later. That could be, uh, again, in keeping with verse 1, the fruit of a man's mouth could be the wise son in the next generation. That's the fruit of a man's mouth that's going forth and living his life in the, for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's uh, the fruit of a man's mouth. The legacy of parents and grandparents who are believers in Jesus Christ and grounded in the Word of God. And uh, you can appreciate that also. But the mouth is also an instrument of eating. As an instrument of eating, the mouth is a portal for enjoyment or not, <laughs> as the case may be. All right? <clears throat> because some eat and are never satisfied. Some, uh, no matter what they take in, and it's interesting, the mouth is a portal for enjoyment. Can we enjoy? Can we taste? And what do we taste? If the soul of the diligent is made fat, <clears throat> what is it that we're eating? And what is it we're satisfied by? And so we have metaphors. In fact, it's common throughout the Old Testament. The idea of eating is used, uh, Old Testament and New Testament alike. The attitude of eating and drinking, those, those metaphors are used for faith. If we eat His flesh and drink His blood, that's the expression that applies to faith. That is, we are believing in Jesus Christ. Likewise, eating the Word of God is accepting it by faith, studying the Word of God and trusting in the Word of God by faith. Your words were found and I ate them and they were sweet to my taste. And uh, so we can appreciate that as well. As an instrument for eating, the mouth is a portal for enjoyment or not. I love the fact that God designed our mouth with taste buds. Isn't that marvelous? He designed us to, um, to not only identify, but to appreciate the things that taste good. There are things that taste great and things that taste horrible. And that's a good thing. Okay? There's things that smell great. And sometimes they smell great and they taste, the taste goes with the smell most of the time. Other times I've smelled things and go, ooh, I can't wait. And then I taste it and go, ooh, well, maybe not. Okay? But that's unusual. Usually they go well together, the smell and the taste. But, but I love the fact that, and I don't know that, um, I've always been curious, maybe you can tell me, it just doesn't seem to me like a billy goat has the same palate, the same appreciation. There's no billy goat connoisseur of grass and thickets and weeds. And I mean, just animals, they eat what they eat. Does it taste good to them? I don't know. They just eat what they eat. You know, when the, when the lion devours the, 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 the gazelle, does that taste good? I don't know. I mean, or is it just an instinct that they're built with? They, they're hungry. They have a hunger. 
And so they devour with the, 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 I mean, it's nasty to watch on the, you know, I watch a lot of Animal Channel, Animal Planet. I love Shark Week, you know, but you see, so you see, yeah, it just, it just doesn't seem tasty to me. I can imagine sinking my teeth into the, 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 the wildebeest in it. It's just, it's blood and it's just yuck, okay? Cook the thing first, <laughs> in my mind. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe animals have taste buds or maybe animals, whatever. Maybe, maybe they find certain things are distasteful and they have preferences for, for certain kinds of grass. And you know, you've got picky dogs and picky cats that they learn that they prefer this to that and whatever. And, but in any event, they're not going to give glory to Jesus Christ by partaking with thankfulness, <laughs> as we can do. We, and we know that all things are sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer, and that we can partake with thankfulness, and we can give glory to God for the abundant flavors He supplies in, uh, in that. And we can enjoy it. Men do prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine does make life merry. There is a benefit to food and drink as God has designed our bodies to receive these blessings. So, um, you just can't turn your appetite into an idol. And you've got to be careful what you're eating and why you find enjoyment. And the drunkenness and the glut- gluttony become the sin of, of excess in that capacity. Right? Deuteronomy 31.20. I enjoy these. And some of these are maybe uh, more uh, on target than others. But the, the, the concept is there. The principle is there. Thirty-nine twenty. When I bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, why does he describe it like that? Why does he describe it as a land flowing with uh, Brussels sprouts and uh, castor oil? You know, I mean, just stuff you don't like. Yuck! Who wants to eat that? No, milk and honey. Okay, well that sounds sweet and tasty. I bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous. Well, that's all a good thing. Should we not eat and be satisfied? That's the design. We should eat and be satisfied. We should be content. We appreciate His faithfulness. We appreciate His bounty. Ah, but then there's a problem. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. The problem is in prosperity, the prosperity testing leads to complacency, leads to arrogance, it leads to a forgetting of who supplied these things. You take them for granted, you lose your grace appreciation, and, uh, and then evil comes. It should come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness. And uh, anyway, he will bring them back and there is a promise of a kingdom and all the glory that Israel has promised. But anyway, the point of there in verse 20 is eating and are satisfied. <coughs> God has provided us with an appetite that's designed to be satisfied. Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he do? What does a shepherd do? He feeds us. He leads us beside still waters. But then he goes on to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So there's feeding, there's satisfaction, there's contentment, there's joy in that feeding in the midst of the conflict. It's not conflict-free. There's enemies still all around. But in the midst of the enemies, we're going to feast. 
You have anointed my head with oil. That's also a provision. My cup overflows. All right. Psalm 104 and verse 15. Uh, Verse 14 says, this is all what God does as the creator and what he does. Um, We are here, actually, this is where uh, he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. That's verse 4. So we saw this psalm last Sunday in the Hebrews class. Uh, Everything else that he does here, verse 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. See, it's not just for the body, it's for the heart. It's food to be enjoyed. It's wine which makes man's heart glad. There's a purpose for it. Remember, the sin is don't drink wine. The sin is don't get drunk. There's a purpose for the wine. And in moderation, it's a provision from God. There is an enjoyment. There is a blessing. And we can appreciate that as well. And so then it goes on. But this is what God has designed. Ecclesiastes 10.19, now we read this one with a note of caution. Okay? Ecclesiastes is human viewpoint. Ecclesiastes is, uh, is the attitude we develop when we um, are not using the Word of God, when we are allowing human viewpoint to shape um, our perspective. I wouldn't make this a memory verse and then live your life by it. Especially that money is the answer to everything part. But, nevertheless, is there truth contained within this human viewpoint that resonates with other passages of Scripture? Yes. Like we just read in Psalm 104. And so men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry. True and true on both accounts. And money is the answer to everything. Well, okay, hold on. (laughs) All right. But there it is. As far as the food and drink are concerned, we can combine that with Psalm 104 and Psalm 23 and Deuteronomy 31, 20. We have no problem with that at all. How about Acts 14, 17? Acts 14, 17. See, everything created by God is good if we use it in the way that He intended, if we used it in the way that He designed it. You know, drink too much wine and you're drunk and that's a problem. That's abusing what he supplied. Eat too much food and that's gluttony. That's a problem. That's abusing what he supplied. We can abuse sex. We can abuse uh, everything that he's designed. If you have too much of it or with the wrong person or the wrong object or, you know, we understand when you abuse and twist God's provision, that's going to take you into the realms of sin. Acts 14, 17. in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So this is uh, God's grace provision. We identify with this. We're not evolutionary, evolutionists. We're not we're not just, uh, we don't view humans as just another animal in the food chain in the, in the, you know, that we eat because it's an instinct, a survival instinct and whatever. Uh, this, is, this is part of what God designed us to do. He didn't have to design us this way. 
When he put Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them all those trees and said, from any tree in the garden you may eat, just stop right there. What does that tell you? We are designed to eat. That is is what he's designed us to do. Now he also designed the animals to eat, but that's a different story. He designed us to eat. Then after the flood, he told us we could eat the animals, which I'm happy for. All right. But why? And what is the purpose of eating? Is it just to keep us alive? Is, Is consuming food, is the only function of consuming food to keep us alive? Clearly not. Clearly not, because we see the enjoyment. We see the glory to God. We see the appreciation. We see the blessings that we have and the function here. Even from one nation to another nation, it is a benefit if one nation's having rain issues and weather issues and crop failure and another nation is not, if the other nation has an abundance to make provision, it becomes an opportunity then to testify to the God of all grace. All right. 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 6. We can get through this and then we'll uh, save the uh, idolatry warnings for next week. 1 Timothy 4. And religion likes to use different things to, uh, as control factors. Men, uh, hypocrisy, these are, they've fallen away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience with a, as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. If you abstain from meat and only eat fish on Friday, what, what value is that? Are you really serving God? What are you doing? Or if you, uh, if you abstain from marriage, if you become a lifelong celibate, you become a monk, what's that doing? Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Accept what God provided in the way that he provided it and uh, give him the praise and the glory. You're sanctifying it by means of the word of God and prayer. 6.17 Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now notice, who richly supplies us with all things, what does it say? To enjoy. Thank you. To enjoy. To enjoy. And this is the real key. If you don't develop your capacity to, in grace, to identify the God of provision, then you could be the richest, miserable person in the world. You have all the riches, but no enjoyment. And you may have very little provision, but all the enjoyment as the day is long. Because again, you have the grace capacity to love and to serve the, the, the God of, of grace, the God of provision. And so it's a beautiful thing. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy and have the, uh, the correct attitude towards finances there. So we'll pick up on this next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for overcoming um, last week's congestion and providing an improved uh, speaking capacity for this morning. And Father, we just call upon your continued faithfulness day by day, moment by moment. Thank you for 
uh, all your supply, all that you do. We're looking forward to seeing the things that we haven't seen yet, but we know they're on the way. And uh, we're just so thankful that you are faithful in all that you do. Give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.